Welcome to The Whole Metaverse, a New York University School of Professional Studies podcast exploring the ever-expanding metaverse and Web3 landscape. Each episode, we'll talk to the pioneers, influencers, and innovators leading the way. If you want to understand and better navigate this burgeoning space, you're in the right place. Welcome to the uh, whole Metaverse podcast, the NYU podcast about the Metaverse. Dr. Elizabeth Haas and I, Pierre Gervois, are the co-host. Today, uh, we had the pleasure to uh, meet the CEO of uh, Cardano Foundation. Uh, Cardano is one of, of the major blockchains. Uh, it's uh, the headquarters of the Cardano Foundation or, or based in uh, Switzerland. And it was a truly uh, insightful interview. We asked to the, uh, the CEO of Cardano Foundation when he saw the interest of blockchain. And he told us he started his career as an executive in the financial industry. And he was concerned by the social justice issue. What about individuals who are not considered bankable? by big financial institution. That, that, that's a, a, a major issue in terms of equality. And you realized that cryptocurrency was a decentralized way of allowing individuals to exchange funds without the need for a central bank. So he liked this concept in that regard. And also he put an emphasis on the, the concept of trust behind the blockchain. The lack of trust can be a very big issue in our society, in business transaction, in government relations with citizens. And the blockchain is solving this particular issue. So trust for him was really one of the pillars of the blockchain. And also he talked in a very poetic way about the human aspect of a particular blockchain and the human aspect of Cardano in particular. He was referring it as what is important is not just the programming, the lines of code of the blockchain, it's the people who work around it. It's the, the team spirit, the soul of a blockchain and the entire community. So we had a very uh, human-centric approach about the blockchain that was really uh, interesting. You know, I also thought that his whole concept looking forward being interoperable across geographies and um, blockchains and what was so important about it, it remaining decentralized was quite interesting too. Not letting, you know, someone else own your data. Yes. And how that plays into whether it will be successful or not in his mind somewhat of the other side of trust, what it, what it's going to take. Very enjoyable. So let's watch and thank you for watching. I would like to, to open a question about your personal story as an entrepreneur. At what point in your career did you realize, oh my God, the blockchain Web3, the metaverse, these applications are going to change the way society can do business, the way people can work together. When this moment happened for you? Yeah, well, so I was basically working in the institutional business of building infrastructure for banks. 
So I was building infrastructure for banks and I was building asset managers and fund managers. And I was kind of on this journey of democratizing capital markets and access to capital markets because I had this, you know, this dream that everybody should be equal and have equal access to the tools of finance. Because we cannot have this like, you know, uh, an upper class who has, you know, you know, always wins, right? So I, I thought that it must be good if everybody has equal access. And um, I was working in Switzerland uh, at that time. And uh, then suddenly, you know, the, you know, the first, you know, Bitcoin companies came and then a little bit later, the Ethereum Foundation incorporated and so on. And one of the things I couldn't understand was why couldn't they just get normal corporate services? So just like a, a, a currency hedge, you know, euro dollar in my bank. So I spoke a lot to, uh, to, to the compliance functions and they all said, you know, oh, it's, it's, this is really bad. And I said, yeah, but hold on a second. The, te the technology is not bad. The use case might be bad. And secondly, they are following all the rules in Switzerland. So why can they not have a bank account? If they can be incorporated, they can be regulated. They're following all rules and all compliance. Why should they not be able to work with my bank? But the bank was still like, oh, pushing back. And then I said, you know what? Then I'm going to help them anyway. So I started, you know, ensuring that they got banking services and ensuring that they got access to capital markets because somehow in my mind, they became unbanked, uh, which was a bit odd, right? Because at that time, Bitcoin was all around, you know, disintimating banks and, you know, killing the, you know, uh, the trust equation and so on. So in a certain way, it, it was a, like an, a little unbanked population which I was starting to help. And the more I started to understand the underlying technology, the more that fascinated me a lot and showed that there might be some hope for humanity in a different way where we can interact with each other. So not only were I interested in the actual crypto space, but I was much more interested in about this equal footing the actual Bitcoin blockchain could do for us. Okay, so social justice and access was important. Yeah, I have a couple questions on that front because it's so aligned with really what Mayor Shivi sees in terms of much of crypto. It's, it's about the ability to bank the unbankable. It's a vehicle for transactions, not an asset. And I just wonder, you know, your view on that black and white um, perspective. So I would go even further, right? Uh, you know, imagine a world where the richest people in the world uses the same system as the poorest, and both groups have a better system than they had before. So instead of going from this kind of split system we have today, we go to more like a unified system, like interoperability. And the way, reason why I want to go further is because I don't only think about transactions, so sort of in a capital markets aspect. I think about that a good third-generation blockchain, specifically one who needs to incorporate the metaverse, you need to be able to articulate value, not just as financial value, but also as intellectual property right, as art, as title registry, as you know, cooking recipes, you know, whatever that might be, it can be a lot of things we associate with value. The second thing is identities. So going back to this banking the unbanked, one of the re biggest reasons we are not able to bank a big part of the, the world population today is because they don't have what we in the West call a, you know, a, you know, a solid identity. And we see, you know, for instance, there's 7 million Palestinians uh, living around in Europe and, and, and Israel, right, who don't actually belong anywhere really, right? So they kind of, they see themselves as a society, but they don't actually have an identity as we would like to think of an identity. So very often you think about fishers in, in, in Ethiopia and so on, uh, who might not even have paperwork, right? But we, you, there's actually also, you know, in, in very, you know, developed countries, we see large populations who don't uphold to the, those kind of, let's say, ideals about what identity is today. So I think 
identity is a a good blockchain needs to have multiple layers of identity. And we don't need to necessarily think about this as threatening democracy. On the contrary, if you look at eBay, I think eBay is a fantastic example. I'm a big fan of eBay, by the way. Uh, but if you look at eBay, right, if you don't know the other side of the uh, commercial transaction, you look at how many times did he sell something before? And the more times he's kind of been selling something and everybody gave him a good rating, you can see he actually paid on time, the more you trust that person. So in, in essence, if you're sitting, you know, somewhere and thinking about micro lending or microfinancing in Kenya, you know, we don't necessarily need to know that it's Mr. Frederick Rigard on the other side of the equation, right? But if I can sort of prove through some kind of a digital identity that I pay back my small mortgage as well as $5 or $10 every single day, and I might slip once or twice, but overall I have maybe like 500 transactions. I would have no problem sitting in Switzerland and, 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 you know, being the counterpart to a micro, you know, loan on that equation, right? So I think these blockchains, as we see them today, are really going way beyond capital markets and into identity, into to trust, into the ability for us to express ourselves. So we can go away from double voting and, and give people the ability to maybe participate in the local community and have a voice where they might not have before because they never had the opportunity to get a national identity card. How would you help a potential user of a blockchain, let's say a person working, an executive in a company who is considering to choose a blockchain for a particular application? There is a lot of choices out there. They could think about Cardano, Solana, Tezos, Polygon. What would you say to say, Hey, we think that Cardano is the right choice for you. So I'm a very boring guy. I think about uptime. I think about, you know, if something really matters to you and is really near and dear to your heart or is near and dear to your family or near and dear to your employees or near and dear to a hospital who's treating patients, what you really want is a high resilience, right? So the first thing I always say is that the blockchain is a very horrible value proposition. We are asking people to, to rely on a database you don't own, you don't control, and where you cannot really predict if it would even exist as it does today in the next five to 10 years. So under normal circumstances, you will always go with a centralized system where you hold the keys to the control and you can put it into your, your hard drive or into your servers and you can run a bespoke side of it. So I think what I would do as a, as a, as a CEO, first of all, was take one step back and think about why would I even need to use a blockchain? Why does that really matter? And the second thing I would look at is how does that become economic sustainable? And what is the governance model of the blockchain? And thirdly, if this really is an immutable database who has these hard written rules into it, is there some places where these rules has been broken or is not holding true? So I would probably really start by not looking at the internet not looking at YouTube and really start, you know, you know, looking into the game theory of what makes this blockchain work. And then suddenly what you will discover is that there's not that many blockchains out there because the blockchain's value proposition is not the technology. The technology has to be up to a certain standard. But most of the real good blockchains have what we call public source technology or open source technology which means that Liz and Pierre and me, we can actually spin up a version of Cardano, which technically will be just as good as Cardano is today within a few hours. 
So if it's not the technology and we are giving this away for free, we're giving, you know, we've written like over 170 peer-reviewed papers in, a, in academia, right? With the research background for this blockchain. We're giving that, all of that we're giving away for free in open source licenses and we're encouraging people to copy it. What is it that makes the blockchain safe, immutable, who makes it economic sustainable? And that's actually the people and the businesses who live on it. It is the people who take the choice you were just asking me about, Pierre, and says, I'm going to pick Cardano instead of something else. It's their belief and how much belief they show into it. And then it becomes a bit scary because then suddenly we're back to a social system. So if you want to look at it from a very high level, I don't know how technical you want to be today, right? But there's two systems who need to meet to make a perfect blockchain, right? One is the technical system, which, as I told you, is for free, right? So it's given away and you can just, you know, like Legos, you can take you know, from Tessas and Algorand and us, and you can build whatever you want, right? And the other one is the social system. And if the social system does not become the trust anchor underlying the blockchain, you just have a dumb piece of technology which, you know, it has no value. So this social system is actually the underlying value proposition of the blockchain. And we are not used to looking at that from a commercial perspective when we do due diligence and we are looking at technology. We're looking at price. We're looking at transactions per second. We are looking at branding. We're looking at affiliation. But we are never really looking at the social systems, right? So if it's a social system that's the differentiator, what's unique about Cardano's social system that makes it better than everyone else's? So I'm always very scared about talking about why Cardano is the best because obviously I'm very biased. I work for the Cardano Foundation. I'm the CEO there and I, I contribute to, to this system every single day. But there's a couple of things I would like to highlight uh, when you ask me about the social system. And the first thing I would like to say is, if you do you have these kind of parties in New York where everybody brings a dish? So you bring a little bit of food and then you share and then you're having a good day. So there's something specifically happening if, if you go to one of those parties and there is not enough food, you know, then it's always a little bit like, why didn't you bring more? And it kind of has a bad, you know, mood, a bad vibe to it. So a good blockchain, people actually need to contribute more to it than what they're getting back. If that's not the case, it won't really scale. And what's very special with Cardano is that we have over 3,000 anonymous stake pool operators. We call it validators. So this is this very environmental friendly way of, of building security into blockchains, right? And they are every single day contributing to the security and the continuous uh, operational part of Cardano. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a we had a we had a sort of a, a, a kind of a bug in the system, right? And what we saw was that the architecture restarted the system automatically. So there was no single you know, in single entity. The Cardano Foundation didn't need to go in and do something, right? The architecture of the system restarted itself. But you know what? In the middle of the night, these validators got out of bed, and they're not working for the Cardano Foundation. They're just actively contributing here. They got out of bed and started doing bug finding and doing error protocols. And they, they you know, not everybody, not all three thousand, right? But a good handful started professionally collaborating together across Discord channels, Slack channels, and started, you know, figuring out what was wrong here together with the companies. And I think then you have this party, right, where people are willing to contribute more than what they give back. And I think that's one of the really special things about Cardano is that what ties us together is the vision, the hope that we have the technology to change status quo and change the world. But not only do we have the hope, 
we also have the people in the community who is willing to go that extra mile and sacrifice some of their nice lives wherever they are to contribute without actually asking for something back. That's very special, I think, in, in this world we live in today. I don't know if you know, but we did, uh, we created a student NFT gallery that we built on Cardano. I didn't know that. That's amazing. It's called Art Lab, A-R-T-L-A-B-B for the double B, but blockchain, dot I-O. So we, we built that on with Cardano, actually, for our students. Thank you very much for, for doing that, because actually this is one of the things I'm, I'm really hurting with at the moment as I'm trying to teach people the differences of what NFTs are and what they aren't and the different ways you can create them, but also the different incentive models and the different constructions you can do around it. So the fact that you did that as a university, I think that's you know mind-blowing and amazing. Thank you very much for doing that. We thought it was important that students could experience it themselves and be part of it. So You work with the Ethiopian government, the Ethiopian Ministry of Education in 2021 to create a records keeping for the ID of students. I think that's really a great application. C could you tell us a little bit more about this particular project? Yeah, so this is actually a project from uh, IOG, which is the, the creators of the Cardano blockchain. And the reason why it fits very well into what I'm speaking about here around social systems is because uh, specifically in, in small and medium income countries, the rest of the world, we have a lot of distrust to the institutions and probably rightfully so, right? We've seen a lot of changes and it's very hard for us to kind of, you know, look at the quality of education or the quality of counterparts and so on. And one of the things we notice is when we look at displaced people around the world, that if a, if a person gets displaced and uh, like a refugee, for instance, it's very hard for them to verify and authenticate their life story, but also being able to add economic and social value to the country who's, you know, taking care of them either for permanent or for, for a short while. And the idea about having sort of an economic identity or a student identity is that in Ethiopia is that this is one of those countries which unfortunately have seen a lot of change and a lot of social unrest. But if you could get to a situation where the students were able not just to prove that they have a, a certificate of education, so the last mile, you know, but they were able to prove the whole way, you know, the road to getting there. So the, 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 the primary school, the high school, the different classes they were taking, like proof of participation, potentially through an NFT like Liz was mentioning here, right? But the fact that they can prove that thing means that there's a higher trust level towards it. So that means that the more independent institutions you have who can verify and validate that, the higher the likelihood that if they are forced to go to another country, or if they choose to go to another country, that they can verify and validate their whole student story. And by that, that we can try and, you know, and leverage out those systems, because it can be very hard if you're sitting and you want to verify somebody from Ethiopia and you're sitting in London, right? And you're like, oh, so, so, so I call Africa, right? And you, you speak to a complete different system and they might also have some privacy rights and they don't want to say anything because, you know, there's you know, the notion of privacy also there, like we have in the European Union with EU GDPR and so on, right? So this is actually quite hard to verify those things. So having this ability to do that, we thought was extremely important. And uh, as the, the last I heard is that IoT is on track to get about two to three million students on this system by December this year. And we're also onboarding the teachers and the schools, which also will allow the educational ministry to go back and see 
what works the best. So maybe there is a way to teach physics in one part of the country where the students get a better result out of it. And then you can go in and start drilling into what is what are they doing differently and try and scale that out across the country. So it also gives a good feedback loop to compare data because you find biases better on a blockchain than you find it on the traditional databases. You said that you can find biases better on blockchains than on traditional ba- databases. Yeah. Is that because you have more data? No, it's the quality of the data. So first of all, you is, there's the one law you... It's just how it is, you know. So if, if really bad data goes in, really bad data goes out. But what the blockchain does is it standardizes data and it, it, it creates a, a, a very, very powerful uh, audit lock. So if you imagine there is a small school and a larger school and the larger school is adding, you know, like tons of data every single day and the small school might not be adding so much data. So what the blockchain does is it forces them to be equal in the system, but both uses the same standard data type. That means that in general, the data seems to have a higher quality and doesn't need to be cleaned in the same way as unstructured data because the factor is it becomes structured data straight away. So when you're looking for biases in an unstructured data pool where you have some trust issues in it compared to a blockchain which tends to have structured data and you're equalizing that in a standardized format, it actually becomes easier to manage. But there's still a chance for biases. You always have to check for biases. And does Cardano has a particular strategy to work with governmental entity like government at regional level, at city level? Have you considered working with cities, working with mayors to improve the life of citizens through blockchain-based projects? I think we, maybe not on a nation state, so on a city-state level, no, but we do have a nation state and a larger strategy and that goes along two ways so there's a big problem with blockchains and it's sort of the elephant in the room so a really really powerful blockchain needs a cryptocurrency but a cryptocurrency does not need a blockchain and unfortunately what we've seen right now is that there's a lot of confusion about cryptocurrencies and there's a lot of i wouldn't say i mean a lot of people are just kind of being very opportunistic about all this cryptocurrency stuff so that means that there's a lot of scrutiny around what we call a utility token, which is the access to a a really good public permissionless blockchain. So we have a regulatory strategy where uh, we've divided the world. So I'm covering uh, Europe, uh, UK, uh, Switzerland, Luxembourg, uh, Liechtenstein, uh, Asia, so mainly Singapore. Uh, And from the regulatory perspective, where we are interacting with the regulators, we are helping to answer questions around how should they regulate this, how should they enforce this, how does the incentive schemes look like, and in general trying to ensure that wherever you are, you can actually use the native token ADA to get access to the powerful blockchain of Cardano. The other approach we're having is that we're actually working with nation states to try and solve real problems by using blockchain. So an example of that is the, the country of Georgia. So what many people don't know is that uh, Georgia, the country of Georgia, most likely was the birthplace of wine, but uh, they were part of the Soviet Union. So when all this uh, marketing boom came, you know, where we really learned about, you know, Cutlass world, you know, with all this, you know, uh, marketing and so on, you know, Spain and Italy, California and so on was really making a very, very strong brand for themselves. And Georgia was not even allowed to sell to the European Union or outside the Soviet Union. So there was a huge gap there. But actually, 
export wine from Georgia as some of the most quality controlled wines in the world. But how do you prove that if you don't have a brand and you don't have billions of dollars to engage and a 20-year history of actually learning this? So what we actually did is we put export wine bottles from a little uh, family-owned winery on the blockchain. And I thought by securing the actual quality and the supply chain, we would make a difference. And uh, we didn't. (laughs) What happened instead was that there was, I call it blockchain citizens, who were suddenly going in and finding wine on the blockchain. And they were like, oh, so I can actually find some wine on the blockchain. And that means that when I buy something on the internet, I will have a higher trust that it has the quality, that the actual wine bottle is tracked and so on. So suddenly it became the distribution who was the sort of the carrot and and not the actual supply chain. Now the supply chain added to that trust equation, but suddenly we had a situation where up in Norway, they were starting buying Georgian wine and then we're not, you know, the Georgian government have never seen that before in that kind of scale. So now we're actually putting 100,000 bottles and we are adding the Georgian government as being a validator. So they're writing directly to the blockchain around these uh, 32 parameter, uh, 32 quality uh, parameters on it. They're also using some AI and some other stuff. So we're trying to kind of look at where can we help, uh, you know, nation states to, to solve real problems, like, for instance, how they trade with other nation states, but also how they position themselves in the world economy. Um, and use blockchain for good. So that example of the Georgian wine, in some sense, is a, is a branding issue, is helping nations create brands. Is that the primary role you, you're, you, you're playing with nations now? We have not seen it yet how it will play out. I mean, this is just an example of how a, a nation state is using blockchain in their infrastructure to change the brand, but also to push products and get economic growth into very small businesses who is having difficulties in attracting capital to grow their business, right? I think, you know, know, it's nearly the same if you look inside the country, right? Did Cardano find this or did the country come to you with the issue? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think it was a little bit of both. So we actually worked with the Georgian government also to change the legislation to be able to do some of that. But the Georgian government, before we interacted with them, already were working with the title registry and some other blockchain use cases. So this specific use case was uh, sort of a little bit of a, a trial and error, meaning that they had some ideas, we had some ideas, and then it turned out to be a third idea, which was a really good match. And now we're working on a range of other ideas there. It tends to always be not what you think you will do, you end up doing, but you're doing something else around these things. Because it's sort of like you're learning about what their problem is, and they're learning about what the technology can do. Because the technology is still very new, right? And, and specifically when you think metaverse as well, there's a lot of confusion about what is the metaverse and what isn't it and should blockchain at all be involved and, and so on, right? So there's, there's quite a lot of learning from both sides uh, of the equation. So I think it's a very hard question to, to answer right now and say, you know, who's looking for who here? On the definition piece, how do you define the metaverse and how do you define blockchain? So this is where I always get hurt, right? Because I remember I went into the metaverse some 20 years ago in something called Second Life because my bank opened up a, a virtual bank branch in there and I had to sell structured products, including Lehman products, which as you probably know, went really bad, right? And it was a complete disaster, right? And now here, 20 years later, people are really excited about these virtual worlds and they can express themselves in there. And I was like, you know, I was a banker 20 years ago with an avatar, you know, <laughs> trying to democratize access to capital markets in a computer-made world. 
But the way I think about it, I think more about Web3. So I think about Web3 as being the third generation of the World Wide Web. My hope, but that doesn't mean that it will be so, but my hope is that it's going to be more decentralized and open up to everybody with a bottom-up design. And I hope that it was going to build on top of blockchains and developments in the semantic web, which describes like a network of meaningful linked data. So if we go back to the Web 2, right? So Web 2 was this ability that we could not only read, but we can also uh, express ourselves in there. What's happened in Web 2 specifically is that we've seen a very large centralization. So we see some very centralized operating models which earns money and is made to give you what you're looking for. But not necessarily what you say you're looking for, but, you know, kind of sparks and centers up in your brain to kind of, you know, give you joy by saying, hey, you are right. You know, whatever issue it is, it will just show you more to kind of, you know, get you into that situation. Now, blockchain is different because blockchain has a different concept. Everything costs something on a blockchain. That's the whole notion, which means a lot of these Web2 models won't work in Web3 on a blockchain. Because if nothing is for free, it also these giveaway scams and all of these kind of, you know, spamming emails, all of that stuff becomes way too expensive to do. And that means that you're suddenly starting to get some quality control for good or for worse, right? You have the ability to authenticate, verify, and validate data sets compared to what you have today, where it's really hard. I mean, I don't want to use your university as an example, but if I, as, a, as an outsider, I don't know university, how do I even know that is your university's website? How do I know that there's no man in the middle? How do I know that the professors or whatever information there is accurate and verified? How can I even check your credentials, right? Everything is sort of like our ability to have a brand and build that brand around that. But it's actually super hard to check those things without actually either breaking a privacy law or something like that. And, uh, and the blockchain allows us to do a lot of that. So. In terms of the metaverse, I will, I will not really say so much because I'm still looking at how it's going to, to pan out, right? Because I think it's an old concept who's, who got a lot of you know, traction lately, right? But my hope is that Web3 will be much more decentralized and built from the bottom up and built with a different incentive model, which allows everybody in the world who wants to participate to not be the product, but can actually create a product and can interact around the world on an equal footing. That's what I would like to see of the Web3. What are the most important requirements as you're looking forward? What are the things that government, cities, corporations can do to facilitate that? And what are you most afraid of? I'm most afraid of user experience. So when we look at the Web2 today, we see that UX and UI has become such a science. So on YouTube, for instance, they have a whole set of psychologists who is building YouTube for kids. I mean, I don't know how many people are aware of that, right? but if there's a whole team of psychologists building YouTube for kids and there is product placement in there, right? I mean, this is, this is scary, right? As an infrastructure banker and as an infrastructure provider of blockchain, I don't know how to compete with the amount of money and the amount of experience there is in some of these large platforms on the UX and UI phase. And what we see today is that many of us, potentially the three of us in this call, We've been giving away our identity through single sign-on using Facebook and Google and, you know, Mac. And we just kind of, oh, it was easier to log on, just share my data, right? But we actually don't know how much we are sharing and so on because we're taking this trade-off from the nice, fluent user experience. And we, we haven't 
even started touching that in the blockchain decentralized space because we're still building the bridges, the sewage, the internet. You know, we're building the core infrastructure of blockchain at the moment. So this user experience is is one of the things I'm really scared about because you know there is these large platforms and they have so much experience and so much money that the humanity probably is willing to do that trade-off to basically just continue with a centralized model on a Web3 or even a Metaverse solution. So this is my biggest scare. And from a government perspective, my hope is that they will be able to have the knowledge and the wisdom to separate utility tokens from financial tokens and cryptocurrencies in such a way that they are not hindering the innovation which is happening right now on public permissionless blockchains. And that requires to be that you need education, you need to be bold, and you need to be able to define a kind of a token qualification like we've done in Switzerland, including understanding the incentive models to be able to, to protect the consumers, but also not hinder innovation in the real public permissionless blockchain space. Is Switzerland really ahead of every place else? It seems to be in some ways on the regulation here. Yes, it is. But Switzerland is just a very, very small economy. And what we're really talking about here is interoperability, not just between Web 2 and Web 3, but we're also talking about interoperability among blockchains and interoperability across borders. So even though Switzerland is ahead of the curve, it doesn't matter if Mika doesn't catch us up, if the Australian government doesn't catch us up, if in the US you don't get some kind of an alignment about you know, who's actually taking care of this. So, I mean, it's about removing insecurity from the builders and the architects while still protecting your constituency from making you know, you know, bad calls. And whether you are libertarian or not is not what we're discussing here, but we're discussing a long arc of innovation, which is moving a lot slower than what AI is doing today, but also other emerging technologies, because it's sort of the backbone of many of these things. So it, it's a tricky one. And I just visited Brussels to be a part of the, the parliamentary discussions there. I'm just invited to, to a hearing in the UK parliament around this topic as well. So we're trying what we can do, but we are not very, it's not very sexy to talk about the infrastructure. What's sexy is to talk about the new Google Maps and talk about the metaverse and talk about all these applications. But allowing the innovation to happen requires that you have comfort around the infrastructure and specifically this utility token and what that represents in the ecosystem because it's a concept we didn't have before. It's fairly new. Can you define utility token for me? I can, certainly. So when I said earlier that a true blockchain needs a cryptocurrency, but a cryptocurrency doesn't need a blockchain, it's because if uh, for me a true blockchain is what's called a public permissionless blockchain, which means everybody can interact with them. But the way we protect the blockchain means that there is no contractual counterpart. It's not like you're 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 having a, a corporation, a limited liability corporation, and then you're you're signing up and there's you know, general terms and conditions, right? What actually runs this blockchain is these validators or stake pool operators. And in order for the economy to go around and they can get incentivized to keep adding data power and get up in the middle of the night, what you do is you you sort of have a subscription fee to using the services. That subscription fee is paid by a native token or utility token on the network. However, from a regulatory perspective, it doesn't matter how you design the utility token. If the population uses this for gambling and speculation and get hurt, you're concerned, right? So there is a battle between 
hope and dreams and marketing and getting rich fast. And then this long arch of innovation where we haven't seen yet all of these you know, radical new innovations which is coming up. So the utility token, you can compare to the subscription fee or the way you pay your subscription fee, not against a counterpart, but against the system. And that is the access to the public permissions blockchain, who allows you to do smart contracts, who allows you to mint an NFT, who allows you to do these actions. Thank you very much, uh, Frederick Gregor. Uh, we learned a lot. We really loved your very human approach, the way you see a soul in the metaverse and the blockchain, not just as zero and one. So that was very, uh, very interesting insights. So on behalf of New York University School of Professional Study, Dr. Elizabeth Hess and myself, thank you so much. And we wish you personally the best of luck and the best of luck for Cardano projects. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I'm extremely proud that you chose Cardano for your NFT art collection. And if you need any support in terms of education materials or in terms of you know, other contributions on how we can spread the love of public commissions, blockchains, whether it's us or another, just you know, reach out to us and we'll be very happy to support in whatever format we can. Thank you for listening to The Whole Metaverse, a podcast from the New York University School of Professional Studies Metaverse Collaborative. The Whole Metaverse is produced by Make More Media. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts And if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe for more content. For more information about the NYU Metaverse Collaborative, please head to www.sps.nyu.edu.